Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter here at Ed Surge. So just how do humans learn? That kind of fundamental question kind of feels like it's got some vibrancy these days. I think there's kind of a feeling that I hear sometimes about how science might unlock secrets of how the learning process works, and that might help teachers and professors especially be better at at getting information into the heads of students. One of the latest people to tackle that question is Josh Eiler in a new book called How Humans Learn. But as Eiler warns readers at the outset, he's not a scientist himself. He's a humanist with a PhD in medieval studies. Actually, and that turns out to be what makes this book so interesting and, and unusual, is that is that he really brings a reframing of the question as he as he sorts through this. Eiler spends a lot of time these days thinking about teaching. His day job is the director for the Center of Teaching Excellence at Rice University. And while his book has plenty of practical tips in there, as you might expect, it doesn't pretend to have all the answers. By offering a guided tour, and a pretty quirky guided tour of a variety of, of theories of how humans learn, he might just cause you to rethink what teaching even is. I talked with Eiler about what surprised him most in his research and what he sees as examples of great teaching. Here are some highlights of that conversation. Thanks for being here, Josh. Thanks for inviting me, Jeff. I guess one of the things that struck me in your book is that you really do start by backing up and framing the real the real issue of what even is teaching. And and it struck me that one of the big questions that is really resonating, is teaching an art or a science? <laughs> that is the perennial question. Um, <clears throat> we actually wrote a, a blog post for our, our teaching center's blog with that title, is teaching an art or a science? And it has by far had uh, more reads than any other blog post uh, we've written. It's something like 40,000 now. Oh, wow. um, I think people are really uh, interested in that question. And my answer might be a little unfulfilling because I think it's actually both. And uh, I'll, I'll sort of explain why. I think you know, <laughs> a, a scientific element to teaching, I think the book is about how understanding um, the science of how we learn, uh, how learning has evolved over time, the, the social um, <clears throat> interactions that shape teaching. There's a real science to it, and the best teachers also often approach teaching uh, and teaching issues um, scientifically. We're gonna, uh, I have a hypothesis of how uh, I think uh, what I think will help students learn. We're gonna test it out, and then we're gonna learn from it and and kind of revise accordingly. So there's something really scientific, but if we focus too much on the science we lose kind of the, the human element of teaching, what I think of as the art of teaching. Uh, a couple months ago, I gave a talk on the teaching as a creative endeavor, and uh, which kind of gets to the, the artistic side of it. And I do think that there's a lot of kind of improvisation that goes into teaching, a lot of the one-on-one work uh, with students. There's something, uh, there's something very creative about that process, knowing knowing our material and knowing uh, student learning well enough to be able to kind of adjust on the fly to figure out what a particular student or group of students need to uh, get them over uh, over a hurdle or an obstacle. I think there's a, there, there's a real art to that. Um, 
the danger of the art narrative though and i think this is a, this is kind of important to have in the background is that if we think teaching is only an art uh we slip into this kind of narrative of the uh, the person who was born to be a teacher in the same way that artists get tired of hearing the person who was born to be an artist artists work really darn hard at their at their craft um uh, and that can be that can be kind of a dangerous narrative about teaching because it suggests that uh, it kind of uh, we we have it at the we have it at the beginning uh, and we're uh, there's nothing we can do to change it. It also provides kind of a convenient excuse for not continually improving. So I think it's both. I think there are caveats on both sides, though. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's this kind of right feeling that. I feel like even some of these teacher of the year awards feel like sometimes mm -hmm. it's almost like, well, um, you know, you're, you're the chosen one who is just kind of as an artist, the best, um, instead of, in, instead of somebody who worked the hardest to get the best grade or something. I don't know. Um, right. No, I think that's a great point. You know, I like, I like teaching awards for the spotlight that they cast on teaching, but like every award, you know, the Oscars are coming up. They're arbitrary. They're voted on by uh, using subjective criteria, no matter how hard we try to make them objective, right? Uh, and so there, I, I agree with you. There is, a, I feel like there's a sense that science these days, and I think I think you even mentioned this in the book. There's a there's a sense that science can unlock some secrets right now that we're on the cusp of maybe figuring out, like how to better teach by, by doing learning sciences, uh, research or, or whatever. And, and even your book, you know, how humans learn, it, it sort of seems to implicitly say that, that maybe we can crack this code and, and get better at, at learning and teaching. Um, and I guess, do you believe there are some, some secrets being unlocked with, with research? Well, I do think that uh, you know science is changing so rapidly that we we learn more uh, that 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 what we know is um, is being clarified and extended uh, over time. Um, so I think my approach to this is that if we know more about learning um, from a scientific or a social scientific or even a humanistic uh, perspective, we can be better teachers uh, and. So some of it is not necessarily kind of uh, breaking a code or unlocking uh, a secret as it is. There's, there's information uh, and studies that have occurred in wide, uh, you know, widely disparate disciplines uh, that very rarely talk to each other. And so it's not as much about kind of um, uh, unlocking anything as it is bringing those pieces of the puzzle together so that uh, people can see the whole picture for the first time. Because one thing that's true about academia is that we tend to uh, reside in silos, uh, talking to people within our discipline, but uh, not always talking to people outside of our discipline. And so it's really more about bringing all the uh, all the threads of the conversation together so that we get a more complete picture of learning and and when we do that then we can um we can refine our current teaching practices in the classroom but i think even more importantly uh we can do two things we can uh develop new teaching practices in the future that are aligned with uh with how people learn and we can also kind of use it as a um 
a litmus test, the science, uh, the, this knowledge of learning as a litmus test for, uh, for new strategies or kind of educational fads that, that come down the pipe. You, you mentioned that fads are out there. It feels like right. those are the kind of things that maybe even we and others cover. Um, but it, it sounds like that's not necessarily the best solution. It's just sort of almost like the next diet that gets crazy and then everyone's like moving on to another one. Um, do you feel like that's kind of been a problem in t talking about teaching? Well, I think um, it, it can be distracting sometimes. I think that, and, and uh, the, the latest thing, the latest fad tends to kind of um, crowd out sometimes the, the discourse, the conversation about teaching. And I do think, you know, I know from um, uh, my discussions with, with faculty that there's, there's this very real phenomenon of initiative fatigue and, and, and fatigue over these fads and um, that I think can, uh, can cover over or distract from the more productive conversations that we could have about okay, well, what, you know, what do we know works and why does it work? And what's the research, you know, the tried and true research on some of these, on some of these techniques. It's not to say that anything that's new is, is bad. It's that, um, I think, uh, some, some, uh, in some cases, attention gets really focused on a kind of a set of, of practices that are untested uh, and then that can sometimes, um, uh, I think, uh, distract from the discussion that we have about teaching. Hmm. Hmm. And, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting is there's almost like a, um, getting back to the first question of is it an art or science, it's almost like what is, what is teaching? People don't, almost don't even agree on, you know, how to measure it or what it is, <clears throat> which mm -hmm. creates a huge problem for someone like you to sort of um, – assist people doing it and or write a book about about it um and i wonder the other thing that i, I hear is like struggling to make a metaphor you know a, is it uh the sage on the stage is that the right way to think about the professor or the guide on the side or all these different things that get talked about is what do you do you have a, a kind of sense of how to metaphorically think about teaching that might help people the the metaphor that i i think of most and some of it's due to the fact that I, I spent the early part of my life as an athlete, but I do think that it, it works on, in a variety of ways for teaching is uh, neither sage on stage or guide on side, but coach. Um, I think, I, I think a, lot of, uh, a lot of teaching is about uh, the same things uh, that, that sort of connect with successful coaches, which is understanding an individual student's uh, level of preparation and they're uh, what, what uh, this educational theorist uh, Lev Vygotsky called the zone of proximal development, which is really simply uh, the the amount uh, uh, the the level that an individual student can reach on his or her own before they need what he called a knowledgeable other to help them. Uh, and um, so those are things that I think great teachers and great coaches understand. Uh, and the other thing, though, is the, the important role played by feedback in the development of skills and, uh, and maximizing success. So that's more the metaphor I go with, because I think there, there are commonalities and uh, both uh, well, the, the kind of coach metaphor really gets to uh, what we know helps students to learn most effectively. Hmm. And what kind of uh, athlete were you, student athlete you mentioned? I'm just curious. I, uh, 
Yeah, I wrestled in uh, in high school and college. Nice. I wonder if coaching is an art or a science. <laughs> good question. <laughs> they might say both too. I don't know. Yeah, there's probably a, a vigorous debate going on um, in a chat I don't know about. But um, right. yeah, and I was surprised, I was struck by the table of contents even of your book. That the chapters, okay. I, I was, you know, I, I don't know, you know, if I was thinking maybe it would be named after the, the sections might be different fields of science or that are informing it or, you know, back to that, like, are there secrets from, you know, about the brain? Because there's a picture of the brain on the cover of the book here. Um, right. But in a way, there are far more, um, you know, this, these, these soft, soft, fuzzy words, like, you know, curiosity is a chapter, sociality, sociality, uh, emotion, authenticity, failure. Um, and I was, you know, I think that it was an interesting, how, why organize the book this way around, around these kind of big buckets, um, like emotion and authenticity. Right. Uh, that's a that's a great question, and there are two reasons for that. I actually started when I when I was beginning the book. I was imagining it organized exactly the way that you uh, began your question: uh, a, a section on sort of evolution, a section on neuroscience, uh, things like that. But every time I tried to start writing it that way, uh, things kept uh, sort of uh, blending into each other, and I could I I could never take a, a thing and say. Okay, well, here's everything that we can say about uh, how neuroscience might affect our understanding of teaching, because it, it had these um, interconnections with uh, social interactions and the evolution of our brain and, and things like that. So uh, it, it it became hard. So I, I started to think about it. Okay, well, well, let's let's flip it a little bit and think about the core mechanisms of learning and what all of these different fields of science have. Uh, bring to bear on our understanding of that. Uh, and so those those topics uh, that, that you just read as the chapter headings were what emerged from the research process as being kind of the key components overall of the human learning, at, at least uh, from my perspective. I'm sure uh, over uh, that many can add topics to that, but those were the ones that emerged from my research process. So I kind of flipped it a little bit so that I could bring to bear um, those different disciplines uh, within the same chapter. And I thought it was really interesting. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the lecture and how the lecture is ineffective and needs to be changed. And um in a way, you don't have a chapter that talks about the lecture that I saw, but instead, I felt like it got talked about under authenticity and that somehow there's something inauthentic about long strands of, of speechifying. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that um, I think is apparent as you start to read about the lecture versus active learning debates um, is that everyone is defining those terms in very different ways. And so uh, you could ask 10 people and they'd all have 10 different definitions of lecture. And some, uh, for some it would be, uh, you know, talking from minute one to the end of class, but for some it would be, uh, you know, uh, mostly talking, some activities, some other kind of mix. And so, um, Wanted to be, I wanted to be really clear that what the, the research shows uh, has a detrimental effect on student learning. 
is the uh, is the nonstop lecturing and, and put it in the authenticity chapter because it uh, a lot of times the culprit with uh, lecturing being ineffective is attention span. But when you when you start to kind of dig into the research on what scientists call cognitive authenticity, attention span turns out to be the um, a symptom, not the cause. And so what cognitive, cognitive authenticity simply means is that our brains are really good at attuning to whether a learning environment is artificial or whether it uh, is, uh, feels more authentic, like um, uh, more real, uh, more attuned to uh, kind of the, the actual conditions under which you would apply that learning. And the, the reason our attention spans suffer in uh, in a nonstop lecturing environment or a continuous exposition environment, as some educational writers call it, um, is is that uh, our brains make this quick decision, right? This, uh, is do I need this? Is this important to me? Do can I use this right away? And so it, they sort of they switch off, and our attention spans uh, follow really quickly. Now, in some cases, and you know, higher, it, the educational environment is kind of a good example of this. In some cases, we can force ourselves uh, to pay attention uh, if there's an external motivator. In this case, grades. But we're in no, but we're not learning as much in those conditions as we would if uh, if um, there were other kinds of uh, evidence-based activities, interactive strategies used. Interesting. So there is a little bit of this sense sometimes. I feel like that. Well, the students need to just do it, whatever to you know, adjust to or or do or do you know to, to pay attention or you know that to to do their part. I suppose. Right. Some accountability. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, and so the idea of that is somehow if the if there's an active, authentic something going on in the classroom, that then students will be they will do their part in that. They're more likely to, to do their part and learn. Right. Yes. Um, and that's just kind of a, because of, uh, because, well, it's, it's biological and that's um, their, uh, we're more attuned to it, right? Because those are more authentic strategies, cognitive authenticity, but also um, designing these uh, designing activities like that. Uh, shows an interest in, uh, from the faculty's perspective, an interest in their learning, an interest in engaging them in the material. And so they're, they're sort of attuned psychologically to it as well. Can you give an example, maybe from your own teaching, of a practice or a moment, like an anecdote of, of what was constituted like an example of like practicing what you're preaching here, like the like good teaching, um, quote unquote, or oh. effective teaching? <laughs> right. Well, uh, okay. I, I have I have so many just even from my home University of Rice because we have uh, we have some great uh, great people doing wonderful things in the classroom and um, you know some of those include uh, uh, so we have some scientists who utilize discussion in their classroom. They they use um, they have uh, some of our biologists here. We have a, a first year. Um, a first year seminar where they they're teaching students how to read um, the scientific papers and then they go they take the students to the labs of the papers uh, where the papers were written and so 
Uh, there's some of that. We have a great uh, engineering course here for um, for first year students where they're put in teams and community partners come in from the outside to kind of outline a problem that they have. And then these teams uh, are tasked with designing appropriate solutions. And some of them actually, uh, some of them actually come to fruition. We've had uh, the Houston Zoo, for example, needed a better giraffe feeder, and some of our students made some of those in that in that class. Uh, so those are really that's when um, those are great examples of authenticity, right? The actual the act of hearing someone uh, outline a problem and then designing a solution can be more authentic than that. Um, it, anything that engages students in the work of the discipline, so in the humanities. Uh, which is uh, my area of training, uh, giving them primary sources to work with rather than, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a lot of the great historians uh, who, uh, teachers of history, who give students uh, the actual documents to work with and, and to try and frame interpretations and arguments from those rather than, uh, uh, and students need to know things too, but rather than an environment where they're only just hearing about events uh, and and causes and and other people's arguments rather than developing their own. Yeah, those examples are certainly not lectures, and but also end up being a lot of work, I suppose, right? And there's an ex, there's a a cost of time and coordination to do any of those things you just mentioned. Yes, definitely, and it is true. Um, and I think we'd be disingenuous not to acknowledge that any pedagogical decision is a trade-off with something else, right? So when you start to prioritize one thing in your teaching, uh, by extension, there are other things that kind of fall to the background. And in this, in, for this particular conversation that you and I are having right now, the, the trade-off conversation, it usually takes the form of, if I'm privileging doing kind of uh, these active uh, learning strategies, these, uh, these kinds of uh, assignments in the class, then the part of the trade-off is how much content can I cover uh, over a 15-week semester if I'm doing that, and that's a, that's legitimate. Uh, but what what we try to suggest here is that um, you know you you could certainly cover all the possible content in the world from A to Z for the the course under discussion, but if they don't rem if students don't remember any of it and they can't use any of it. What good has that been? And so that the trade-off, you know, that 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 conversation about what can I cut uh, from the content in order to build these activities where they can use the information, do some ap application work. Uh, that that's a real thing, but a worthwhile discussion to have. So you run the Center for Teaching Excellence there at Rice, mm -hmm. and clearly, you know, I've just done this this bit of research where you're really looking at what's what's out there um, in various fields on teaching. But what do you what is your sense right now of how you know teaching is going at colleges? Are there are, is there a, some sort of moment where there's more attention paid and more kind of um, improvement, so to speak, at, at how college teaching is done? Uh, is it kind of flat? Is it down? What what is the do you see any any trend or movement in that in that area? Yeah, I do actually. Now I'm going to preface this by saying I'm an eternal optimist by disposition. So, uh, but <laughs> it does seem to me um, that we are we are at a moment where teaching is getting uh, a lot of attention, um, and I think you know some of that 
Uh, and so there's there's sort of um, uh, there there are a couple ways of looking at that. Some of it is that um, the faculty are getting more training as graduate students in pedagogy. They're they're uh, so so new faculty who are coming on board have had workshops as grad students and and some training and some interest in that area. Some of it is that um, key disciplines in the sciences are opening up positions. Uh, these are called uh, discipline-based education research positions. So imagine a physics department at a research university uh, um, for many years would have had um, tenure, tenure track faculty only doing uh, traditional physics research, which is wonderful and important. But now they're hiring um, full-time tenured faculty whose, uh, whose research programs are entirely on teaching physics or teaching chemistry. And so there's a there's this kind of groundswell grassroots movement uh, in the STEM disciplines that I think is uh, is um, uh, creating some movement there. And uh, I also think that um, there's uh, there's this boom of pedagogical literature, of books about teaching, of writing about teaching. Uh, you know, the, the Chronicle of Higher Ed has this um, teaching section now that uh that uh i think uh is is really interesting and really uh does a great job of spotlighting individual instructors and other kinds of initiatives across the country so i feel a lot of uh genuine kind of interest and energy uh, across the country with respect to teaching right now um now the another side of it though is i think uh part of that energy also comes from uh, the 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 push on campuses for assessment and so teaching uh, is being looked at very carefully because uh, because universities need to assess their learning outcomes now some of that is a really good thing um, and some of it's uh, the the need uh, some of it gets uh, clouded I think. Uh, under the rubric of uh, compliance, and so it's a, it, it can turn some people off. But the attention on teaching is very much there, regardless of what of how it's received. So, in in most ways, I think it's a really positive uh, a, a movement, a lot of energy uh, around it, and I think that um, I I see the conversations really starting to explode about teaching at a lot of different places. Is there any? What's the thing that surprised you most um, in your research or putting this book together? Right. Uh, you know, the the thing that surprised me most actually was uh, makes up a lot of the final chapter, which is on failure. Uh, we uh, in graduate school as teachers, we don't get trained to think of failure as a positive thing in any way. Even though as researchers, we know that failure is a part of the learning process that, you know, no one walks into a lab right away and comes up with the Nobel Prize winning discovery. It's just, it's an iterative cycle. Um, but we have ed these educational systems that are set up to uh, move in exactly the opposite way. We give students really high stakes uh, with uh, assignments uh, and assessments with very few opportunities to do them. So the, the, a lot of the research where people are now kind of harnessing the power of failure as an opportunity for learning within courses, uh, that was really surprising how much work people were doing with it and, and the results that they're getting. And kind of it reframed 
even my orientation to what can I do in my courses to destigmatize failure for students, to give them more opportunities, low stakes opportunities, just to try things out and take intellectual risks uh, in order to kind of move their knowledge forward. And I think that's amazingly important for higher education. And I was very pleasantly surprised uh, to see how much work people were doing on it. Hmm. So um, th th it almost gets back to things like the grading structure as a, as a piece instead of just the, I think a lot of times when they think of te reforming teaching, it's, it seems like it's like the act of whatever's happening in front of students in a, you know, like a lecture mm -hmm. or not, or this or that, but you're saying it may be also about how assessment works. Oh, definitely. And I think so much of effective teaching, uh, you know, and at our teaching center, we, uh, we tell new faculty this all the time at orientation that, uh, there's a ton that goes into effective teaching that students never see. And that's, that goes all the way back to even the course design itself. What are your goals? How are you aligning everything in your syllabus with those learning goals? And so, um, yeah, there's a lot in the background that really shapes uh, an effective, positive teaching experience. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your, your findings from the book and, from, and for talking about these, these big issues. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jeff. I really appreciate the invitation. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I want to thank everyone who responded to our listener survey the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're, we're now pouring over that feedback, and, and later today I'm going to pick a person at random to, to get the $100 Amazon gift card. We've, we've heard plenty of encouraging things and some good suggestions, some tough love, for how to make this show better. So stay tuned as we as we try to, to work out some, some new uh, new ideas. If you don't already, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen. We're now on Spotify and Google Play and pretty much everywhere, uh, even some podcast directories I've never heard of, um, I've noticed on a recent Google search. And please spread the word about the podcast if you know others who might be interested. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Uh, I'm currently standing with a microphone in the closet of my bedroom. Good sound quality, I hope. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.